For most of the 20th century, the fear of communism loomed large in the minds of Western governments. The Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 shaped attitudes towards Soviet Russia and set the scene for the Cold War to emerge in the 1940s. Bolshevism was, after all, the self-proclaimed vanguard of a world revolutionary movement, and its spread was of great concern to Western powers. A new book by historian Dr John Mulqueen explores how Ireland, racked by the violence and instability of the Troubles, was viewed as a potential pawn in a wider geopolitical chess match. It's called An Alien Ideology, Cold War Perceptions of the Irish Republican Left. And Dr Mulqueen joins me now. John, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Let's start in the mid-1940s, obviously the time of the beginning of the Cold War. Ireland had been officially neutral during World War II, but just talk to us a little bit about Ireland's policy of neutrality in relation to the burgeoning crusade in the West against communism. Well, the Irish state uh, has been militarily neutral, but importantly, it has never been politically neutral. So there was no question of the Irish state not being part of the Western struggle against Soviet-led communism, and that is particularly the case during the Cold War. So the origins of the Irish participation in the Cold War would uh, lie in the 1940s when the military intelligence directorate of the Irish army under the uh, director Colonel Dan Bryan and the Garda Special Branch were working closely with the British Security Service, MI5, against the IRA and were monitoring the activities of some German agents in Ireland during the war years. They were also keeping an eye on communist infiltrators who joined the Labour Party and they had some success in electing a Lord Mayor um, in 1943. They had some success in the 1943 general election. Uh, both Larkins, Jim Larkin Sr., that's Big Jim, of 1913 fame, and his son Jim Larkin Jr. were elected TDs, and they had been closely involved with Soviet-led communism in the 1930s and 40s. And were the Americans interested in what was going on in Ireland at this stage, with the the successor of the OSS, the CIA? Very much so. At the height of the early Cold War, during the McCarthy years in the US, the Americans were very, very vigilant. And even though the number of pro-Soviet communists in Ireland were tiny, the Americans and indeed the Irish security authorities were very concerned that the Irish communists were under the direction of the Communist Party of Great Britain, which in turn, of course, is led and directed by the Soviet Union. So even though the Americans admit that Ireland is the most viscerally anti-communist country in the world, I'm quoting a US embassy official there, the Americans were very keen that the CIA should have a role in monitoring Ireland's communists. And the response to that, and here's where the difference between political neutrality and military neutrality comes in. The Irish authorities said, no, you can't have a CIA office or officer in Dublin. But what we can do for you is we can uh, allow you to have somebody in London who will be in charge of, of Irish monitoring, and we will brief that officer fully. So in other words, the, the, there's a formal CIA Irish link from 1951. 
Now, the phrase you used in the title of the book, an alien ideology, is used again and again by politicians uh, during this period to describe the so-called spectre of communism. And it illustrates the point that our neutrality was nuanced. There's a difference, uh, as you've been pointing out, between military neutrality and political neutrality. Um, Just talk to me about some of the Irish politicians who would have articulated uh, that difference. I'm thinking particularly of someone like Sean Lamas. Well, Sean Lamas um, was very keen that Ireland should join the EEC, European Economic Community, as it was, and he spelled it out in 1960. There is no such thing as neutrality, and we are not neutral. He wanted to uh, break the connection in Irish minds between partition and neutrality. In other words, Sean McBride in 1948 refused to refuse an American invitation to join NATO because of the partition of the island of Ireland. Lamas wanted to break that, and the way he did it was to suggest that uh, if we were going to join the European Economic Community, we might have to follow the political direction of the European Economic Community. The uh, member states up to 1973 were all NATO members. So that's where Lamas breaks, begins to steer the Irish policy away from the, the focus on partition. So the actual term, an alien ideology, is often used at election time. So, for example, in 1969, the Fianna Fáil government had been in power for 12 years. The Labour Party had some new, very media-friendly candidates, and the Labour Party had adopted the slogan, the 70s will be socialist. Fianna Fáil were afraid, and uh, Lynch, Jack Lynch, the Taoiseach, used that term to describe anything resembling Europe directed or even US directed protests. So for example, 1969, uh, this is the height of the protests against the Vietnam War. Campuses across Western Europe and indeed the United States are uh, up in, um, I was going to say up in flames, but that's that's an exaggeration, but certainly plenty of uh, tear gas around Germany, France, the United States. Students were killed in Kent State University in uh, the United States in 1970. So Ireland was part of the 60s towards the end of the decade, particularly uh, in the north. Derry, October 1968, Burntollet Bridge, civil rights demonstrators were attacked by loyalists in 1969. So there was a perception in Dublin, for example, in the US Embassy, uh, in advance of a visit by Richard Nixon, that students in Dublin and elsewhere might become radicalised because of what was happening in the north. So this is the era of marches. There's a Dublin Housing Action Campaign with the um, IRA and Sinn Féin very involved in. The anti-Vietnam War campaign is happening in Dublin as well. So the times uh, that were there, protest, Vietnam, housing, civil rights, there's a perception in the official mind that alien influences are at work, be it European Marxism, be it Soviet Communism, it's a loose phrase. Charlie Hawhey used it again as Taoiseach, Fianna Fáil Taoiseach, in 1987 to describe uh, the Workers' Party, which had emerged out of the split in the Republican movement in 1970. In other words, the official IRA, official Sinn Féin, became the Workers' Party. The provisional IRA later became just simply Sinn Féin uh, in 1982. OK, let's just talk a little bit more about that 
split, when you look at that split through the prism of the Cold War, would you say that there was something of a red scare within the Irish Republican movement in 1969-1970? The opposing sides in the Republican split, you had the leadership led by um, Cahill Goulding and the late Sean Garland, who died um, just very recently. They wanted to politicise the Republican movement. They wanted to cooperate with other left-wing groups, including the Communist Party. They wanted to agitate on economic issues that would appeal to people and mobilise people, such as housing, such as civil rights, such as uh, fishings, uh, where they would um, occupy a private estate and private fishing waters and fish for salmon. proved very popular, as you can imagine. And then you had the so-called Old Faithfuls, They are nervous of politics. They see it as the creation of Fianna Fáil, the creation of Clan Republica, a dilution of the Republican movement's focus, which in the traditionalist view should always be on partition, removing the border, removing the British presence, uh, removing that by force of arms. So they're nervous of politics. Uh, They're nervous of parliamentary politics in particular. And they employ the term alien ideology or even dictatorial socialism or even communism to paint the left-wing Republicans as alien or under the influence of the Communist Party of Great Britain in particular because some of the intellectuals who joined the Republican movement in the late 60s who were pushing this drive, uh, Roy Johnson for example, had all been in England had all been in the Connolly Association, which was directed at Irish immigrants in Britain, but was under the control of the Communist Party. So they could paint uh, a picture, sometimes accurate, sometimes inaccurate, but in rhetorical battles, as you know, the truth can be diminished in favour of exaggeration. So Jimmy Steele, who was a veteran Belfast Republican, he'd spent a a major amount of his adult years in, in jail in Belfast, he challenged the Carl Goulding leadership in 1968 and he said, um, one is expected these days to be more conversant with the thoughts of Chairman Mao than with those of our dead patriots. So, Porrick Pierce, that's okay. Uh, James Connolly, even though he was a Marxist, socialist, uh, is okay. But anything that might be uh, linked with communist parties in Britain or elsewhere is absolutely not okay. And they use that language to depict the leadership as uh, being under the influence of the Communist Party of Great Britain in particular. And of course the provisional IRA or provisional Sinn Féin and official Sinn Féin then went their their separate ways in 1970. Um, Your book is, though, though crucially, I think, a study of perceptions, how the authorities like the Irish government or the UK Ministry of Defence, how they perceived the threat of communism. With the civil rights agitation in the North in the 1960s, the civil rights movement, people's democracy and all of that, did the authorities think that the Soviets could seek to, quote, fish in troubled waters? Yes, well, the the term uh, fishing in troubled waters comes from the Secretary of the Foreign Office, It's important to understand that Britain, of course, is the right-hand ally of the United States in the Cold War, a major player in NATO. It's Intelligence Coordinating Committee, the first item on the agenda every day, 
is the Cold War, the threat posed by the Soviet Union and, to a lesser extent, China. So what happens with the civil rights when it disintegrates into sectarian violence, when it is squashed or pushed off the streets by loyalist reaction, by the authorities, by the police, and you have the emerging troubles, it's not really until 1972, which happens to be the worst year of the troubles in Northern Ireland, that you get a sharp sense in London that Ireland could possibly be engulfed in violence if the Northern Troubles spill over. So, for example, Bloody Sunday, end of January 1972, there's widespread anger throughout Ireland. The British Embassy uh, in Dublin is burned down by a massive crowd which had been gathering outside the embassy for days. British and US diplomats both thought that uh, Leinster House would have been next if the guards and the army had tried to uh, disperse the crowds. So the early months of 1972 is the peak of anger at what's happening in the north, spilling over into the south. And this coincides with the expulsion of 105 KGB agents or alleged KGB agents from Britain the previous year in September. So the authorities in Britain are worried that if they've just kicked out 105 KGB agents and the Irish state is at an advanced stage of talks with the Soviets about opening an embassy. There's a consensus in Dublin, both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael feel that it's time that Ireland had diplomatic relations with the Soviets because we're going to join the European Economic Community. So we need to modernise. We can't be like the Vatican City or Portugal and not have relations with the Soviets. So we have the common travel area between Ireland and Britain. And there's a fear in London that if the Irish have an embassy in Dublin, well, all these expelled KGB agents will simply base themselves in Dublin and go over and back as they please. In other words, pick up where they left off. So you have a heightening of the troubles, the high point of southern anger at the violence in the north and the actions of the British Army and the RUC. And in tandem with that, you have this move to have diplomatic relations and a sense in, in London that the Irish, they're well able for the IRA in the south, but they are quite adamant that the Irish authorities would have would be no match for the KGB in a Soviet embassy in Dublin. What about then the communist movement itself in Ireland? When one thinks of that movement, one thinks of a very splintered movement, a number of different organisations um, vying for prominence and also with very different attitudes towards uh, towards Northern Ireland. But uh, did elements of the communist uh, movement in Ireland seek to forge alliances with other radical movements, with, for example, official Sinn Féin? Yes, the, the border campaign of the late 1950s was a disaster for the IRA, the lesson learned by the aforementioned Cahal Goulding and Sean Garland and others was that economic agitation was the way forward. In other words, be relevant to the people. The leadership in the 1960s was very clear that they were going to go uh, down a political road and they were very clear that they were going to do that with other interested parties, particularly the tiny Communist Party led by uh, Mick O'Riordan in the South, and Betty Sinclair then would have been a prominent Northern Ireland communist. She was the uh, secretary of the Belfast Trades Council. She was a chairwoman of the Civil Rights Association. So the Civil Rights Association and the Housing Action 
committees, that would have been the most successful collaboration between communists and left-wing Republicans. Political agitation basically goes up in smoke once the troubles take off in 1971-72. So you could say that the Communist Party is pretty marginal, very marginal, once again. And the Communist Party does collaborate with the left-wing Republicans in official Sinn Féin, but they fall out uh, in the late 70s, by which time the official Sinn Féin has a very, very totally hostile attitude to the provisional IRA, has a totally hostile attitude to what it perceives to be a sectarian campaigning in the North. Uh, in other words, unity of Catholic and Protestant is absolutely paramount. And in their view, in the late 1970s, that means uh, campaigning around trade union issues, campaigning around jobs. And whereas um, that yields results in the South, it's absolutely impossible to do anything like that in the North. So, yes, they do collaborate in the 1970s, but it's pretty much all over by the late 1970s. And when they, ha- they do then have a formal falling out in 1977 with the publication of a document called the Irish Industrial Revolution by what is now uh, Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party. And that document is uh, an attack on any demand for national unity or um, any demand to uh, campaign against the British in Northern Ireland. Uh, economic issues purely is the way forward, um, according to this. Trade union activity is the way forward. Infiltration of trade unions. Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, Workers' Party had some success in this. That's the way forward. So there's a formal falling out, and they both complain to the uh, Soviet Union about each other. Now, you mentioned the establishment of diplomatic relations between Ireland and the USSR and the establishment of a Soviet embassy in Dublin. That comes about in 1974. And was there any realisation of those fears that you talked about, that the KGB would become very active in the Soviet embassy in Dublin and would use that as a staging post for operations against the UK? The Soviets, for the most part, during the Troubles, confined themselves to propaganda attacks against Britain. There was no shortage of human rights issues in the North during the Troubles. The Soviets were under pressure from 1977 uh, on human rights with um, the West, with the US, with NATO. And so the Soviets um, were defensive and they, they used issues in the North to try and embarrass the British. But that would have been about as far as it went for the most part. The Soviet Union was bigger than other embassies. That was par for the course around the world. Uh, It did have a complement of KGB officers, at least according to the British and Irish authorities. But for the most part, it didn't, as far as we know, use the Soviet embassy in Dublin as a base to uh, undermine Britain. Having said that, the Irish government, Gareth Fitzgerald was Taoiseach, expelled three Soviet um, diplomats uh, or KGB officers uh, in 1983. And that was unprecedented. The Workers' Party deputies in Dáil Éireann were um, quick to defend the Soviet Union and point out, well, why didn't we take action against British spies in Dublin? Uh, What about the CIA and the American embassy? But uh, that was the only party, of course, to to jump to the defence of the Soviets in 1983. The expulsion of three Soviet diplomats in the early 1980s might be the um, 
regarded as the high point, as it were, of illegal activity in the embassy. But it was the exception rather than the rule. Now, finally, you write that historians of the Troubles are generally reluctant to view the crisis in geopolitical or Cold War terms. So how does your work challenge that consensus? The historian Michael Cox, who's now based in London, started a debate uh, in Belfast uh, some years ago, and he basically said, why have historians been so parochial? Why have political scientists and historians not looked at the wider picture? So most historians viewed the Troubles as indigenous to Ireland and the, the conflict between loyalists and nationalists, between Irish Republicans and the British state, that was an Irish affair. And Cox challenged that and he used the end of the Troubles and the role of the ANC, for example, African National Congress, in helping the Sinn Féin leadership, Gerry Adams, Martin McGuinness and so on, to persuade the Republican movement, the provisional Republican movement, to adopt a ceasefire and engage in negotiations as the ANC had done, uh, as the PLO uh, did briefly uh, in the mid-90s in the Middle East. And he used that as a way of saying the Cold War is relevant. My book highlights the fact that the Cold War was always relevant and that the Cold War perceptions of British, Irish, American security authorities uh, illustrates that the troubles in Northern Ireland, there was a, a, a bigger picture and bigger forces were at play, such as the Soviet Union, or indirectly using proxies like the Cubans. There was a perception that the Soviet Union and its allies did have a role in the troubles from the beginning in, in 1968 uh, right through to the 1980s. Well, the book is called An Alien Ideology, Cold War Perceptions of the Irish Republican Left. It's published by Liverpool University Press. The author is Dr. John Mulqueen. John, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thank you very much, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Duncan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.